morning, everybody, once again. It's, uh, it's good to be here and uh, to celebrate uh, this series that we're halfway through already. I've been away for the last couple of weeks, so it's nice to, again, reconnect with you. Um, before we go any further, let me, let me lead us in prayer as we prepare ourselves for God's Word. Father, we thank you that as we open Scripture, it opens us. And for that reason, Lord, you, your Word is live and breathing and life-giving. And so, God, we, we want to be able to surrender to the authority of Scripture because it searches us, it knows us, and the leading of your Spirit will continue to outwork what it is that you've destined for us. And so we pray, Lord God, that uh, we'd have humble hearts today and uh, receive what your Word says. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, as um, some of you are already aware, last Saturday, eight days ago, um, Michaela and I became grandparents for the first time. So uh, that's a really big change for us. Yeah, the old story, isn't it? Mum and baby are doing fine, dad's still recovering. Uh, yeah, the, the, adult, um, the adults, not the adults, um, the, the father gets two weeks off work these days, eh? That uh, paternity leave is a pretty good thing, really. You should have, I talked to Michaela about that, we could have a few more. Um, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, just to show you that we're committed to the series in, of James uh, as a family, the young boy's first name is James. So, uh, you know, I'm just glad we weren't doing Hezekiah or something like that. But um, anyway, they're all doing well. Um, talking about traveling light, uh, two weeks ago, I took some leave and I went off up to Darwin to speak at a, a conference up there, a men's event. And uh, traveling light, I got to the Auckland airport, as I do, always get early, get there early, three hours beforehand. And I walked into the check-in and I realized I left my passport at home. So that's traveling too light, isn't it? Um, thankfully, with the extra time up my sleeve, my daughter, Brittany, was able to get in the car and uh, get the passport to me in record time. I haven't had any speeding tickets come through the mail from her little excursion, but uh, I'd be willing to pay for them if they did turn up. Okay, so that's traveling a little bit too light. The, the title for today's talk is called I Am Second. And, uh, oops, it's Logan gone to the Navy already, is he? Hold on. There we go. I am second. And uh, the reason why I've entitled it I am second is because we're talking here about humility. But also I want this to remind you that there's a fantastic um, page on the website called I am second. And some of you may have seen it, but it's got testimonies of people largely from the States, politicians, sports people, business people, uh, who have willingly shared their faith online, and the final line that they say in their story is, I am second. Okay, so if you're looking for a bit of inspiration, head to that website called I am second. Now, what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to pick up from where Monica was two weeks ago, because in that passage that Monica shared with us, uh, James has lulled us into a, a lovely picture, a lovely place of peace with the way that he describes what it is to live under the authority of God. And so here we're going to kick off with this. It says here in James 3.17, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now that is a wonderful picture of what God's wisdom brings, isn't it? It's this oh, 
I'd like a bit of that, wouldn't you? And you read those words together, you go, yeah, I'd like a bit of that. God's wisdom, which leads to this, this wonderful picture and uh, leads to a harvest of righteousness. And just build this image in my mind of what a harvest of righteousness would look like in the natural, just that, that lovely golden glow, that warm evening look upon a, a field of grain. It's lovely. I like that sort of picture. So we're left there with this sort of ah picture going on, and then immediately James, James turns a corner and confronts his readers. And he confronts his readers with the fact that they are anything but a harvest of righteousness. They have got a few problems to attend to. And there's no doubt in my mind that there would be problems, because in this new church community, there are people from all backgrounds, pagan faith, Jewish faith, uh, people who are from different socioeconomic groups, different languages, different cultures, all coming together in various places around the Mediterranean who are coming to know Jesus. And this letter is addressed to all the churches. And so therefore, it's a, a broad brush, a shotgun type approach of a letter. But Paul, uh, sorry, James is saying uh, that there is a challenge in front of us as a church. We've got to address these tensions. So here he goes. He said, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And you do not have because you do not ask God. Now it's going to just take us a little while to uh, take ourselves through this passage this morning, but what I want to talk about is the second big fight that we find in Scripture. The first big fight, of course, is Adam and Eve with God and they wrestle about this fruit that was taken, and then they hide, and then they're in trouble. Uh, but they're taken out of the garden, cast out of the garden of Eden. And next thing we find that uh, there's another fight that goes on. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks. And Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now, just a second there. This in itself is a sermon which I'm not going to get into. We'll just take it at face value, okay? Why was God happy with one, not the other? But uh, the, the thing I want to raise is further on. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Cain. This is the second big quarrel, and this is the first one that has caused a death, a death in the family. Not really great start for the first family, is it, to have this sort of violence happening. But what we want to address here is how it is that Cain was disappointed with the fact that God didn't find that offering pleasing, that offering of grain. As I say, there's, there's a whole story in behind all of that, but what I want to do is take that at face value and find that God actually confronted Cain when his offering wasn't accepted, and he said, why is your heart so downcast? Basically, he hasn't pleased God 
Why is your heart so downcast? Now just be careful because sin is crouching at the door. And we get this image, don't we, of, of sort of this curled up snake or a lion that's ready to pounce. Sin is crouching at the door. When I was up at, in Darwin just a couple of weeks ago on the station where this event was held, uh, 200 kilometres out of Darwin, two and a half thousand acres, just a hobby farm up there. And, uh, and all I heard was stories about crocodiles and how they crouch on the edge of the water and they'll, they'll leap out and grab you. And there'd been a, a death only a couple of weeks before in Australia of this nature. Well, at the end of the camp, these guys said they'll take me hunting. So uh, they said, well, we're going to go over through that bush there and we're going to find some pigs in and around the billabong. And I said, yeah, that sounds really cool. And uh, anyway, <laughs> I got within 20 metres of the water and I'm like, that's far enough. <laughs> I don't care how big the pig is, this is far enough. If the pig wants to come to me, that's the will of God. Otherwise, I'm not going anywhere near anything that's crouching to get me. So here we find... Um, God challenging Cain, saying, sin is crouching at the door. In other words, you have a choice here. This is really tempting you to do something that is negative, something that is evil, something that is sinful. And the irony of this whole story, in fact, it it sort of sets us up in a way for uh, an understanding of ourselves. But what happens in this story is Cain has this tension with God. God isn't pleasing him in the way that he wanted him. He wanted him to take his offering. But that happens a lot in our lives, isn't it? How we feel that what we've given to God is is the right thing to do, and and yet some things don't work out with us. And the end result of us having some tensions with God or some disappointment with God is that we take it out on others. We can easily find ourselves in a place where we'll be quarreling with God and our quarreling ends up affecting the relationships with those we have around us. This is one of the phenomenons that we find in pastoral work, and uh, it's probably something not spoken of that often, but the simple truth is this, is that if somebody has an unanswered prayer or a life that isn't going as they would like it to go, and they have the sense in which God owes them something, and they're disappointed with God, uh, often pastors and ministers and vicars and like get it in the neck from that person because we're the ones who represent God. You know, it's sort of like saying, hey, listen, talk to your boss and get him to answer my prayers. You know, well, yeah, okay, I wish it worked that way. Uh, doesn't quite work that way. But here we find Cain took out his misery upon Abel, yet his problem was with God. Can we see that? His problem had nothing to do with his brother. But he was jealous and envious of the fact that his brother seemed to be getting on good with God. And so he was angry and jealous of that side of the, of the relationship that Abel had with his father God, and he killed him as a result of that. So we just got to be mindful that when we're going through a difficult, difficult time, and God doesn't answer the questions for us in the way that we'd like him to, we have to be careful that we don't project that frustration or that disappointment upon other people around us. This is something that we are working through with God. So that first sin that Cain actually committed was his inability to reconcile the problem with God. And instead, he took it out on somebody else. And and we've all got to admit it, don't we? We come home from a bad day at work, and uh, the first person who gets it is the dog. Get out of my way. You know, you get off my chair. Give me the remote. Okay, what's the problem here? You had a bad day at work, you're taking it out on your family. 
Okay, it's a very simple human thing for us to do, isn't it? To project our frustrations or our anger onto other people. So, James says this, you covet but cannot get what you want. Now, of course, covetousness is the 10th commandment, and I think it's one that slips in at the bottom there, and we don't take so much cognizance of it because it's sort of very, very simple. Don't covet, don't covet uh, your, your neighbor's donkey, etc., etc., or your neighbor's wife. Uh, so you go, oh, yeah, okay, I can live with that, okay? But covetousness is a real huge driver in the world that we have today, isn't it? You know, in fact, the whole capitalist society that we live in within the West would die tomorrow if covetousness was taken care of. Imagine if you woke up one morning, imagine the whole world woke up one morning and said, I'm satisfied. I don't need anything more. I'm good with what I've got. The economies of the Western world would grind to a halt. So you can see how powerful this is? Sounds like a simple thing to say, don't covet, but it would grind to a halt. Now, this whole issue that James is addressing is about humility and how we desire to have what we haven't got. And then we quarrel and we argue with one another. Uh, I've got a little bit of video to show you now, which is from a series, relatively recent series of Dr. Phil. Now, have anybody of you have watched Dr. Phil before on a mid week afternoon, Jeremy Kyle, i tell you what's a really good reason to not be sick and to get back to work as soon as you possibly can, because <laughs> if that sort of stuff on telly is just mind-blowing. But we're going to watch him interview a 15-year-old girl who's got a real problem with her mum. Her mum has reduced her pocket money from $5,000 a month down to 1000 and she's deeply, deeply distressed and disappointed by this. Okay, so she's taking it up with Dr. Phil. Now, just to help you understand this, I've, I've got a picture here of a, a vehicle. It's called a Mercedes G-Wagon. Okay, this is what it looks like. I don't know how much they cost. I'd hate to think it'll be eye-watering. But I just needed to show you what a G-Wagon is before we move into this video. So let's Watch the lights, put up the sound. You wrote in to me, tell me what you wanted me to get straight with your mom. I want my mom to understand that I can't live off of $1,000 a month and I grew up on a certain lifestyle. She can't just take that away from me immediately. If someone took her lifestyle away from her, she wouldn't like that. And I grew up on it, it's all I ever know. I can't deal with this. And so I came to you for help. Okay, so you want me to get her to do what? What would be the home run for you? I need her to understand that I need at least $2,500 a month. She's not, she works all the time. She doesn't do anything for me. She doesn't drive me anywhere. And so other people would have their moms like drive them places, buy them food, make them food, but I have to do everything myself and I need the funds for that. So do you do that it, it, when you when you have the money, are you in there in the kitchen frying up stuff and mixing up No, I'm buying and... food. So you eat out a lot? Yeah. yeah. I make food at home, but then I get bored of just... I don't like cooking because it just makes a huge mess, and then my mom gets mad at me. And yeah. I don't like cleaning up a huge mess and doing the dishes. And then I just don't like eating at home because it's the same boring food. You say she's out there for you. How do you get to school every day? I do online school. I don't go to school. For... You don't go to school? I don't go to, like, 
public school for other well, reasons. Why not? Like, I just got traumatized. I can't get into that right now, but... Um, you got traumatized? Yes. Part of it is why she couldn't keep up with the lifestyle of the no, other kids that's, that's, in Beverly Hills. There's other reasons. I'm not just, like, being a brat about that. But you don't go to school, do you? So you I do help? online school. Uh, yeah. How's she doing? She's doing okay. I had to push her a little bit to get some of those grades up, but um, when she wants to focus on something, she's doing good. Yeah, and I like it because I, I can like actually focus on it because I mm. also was behind like in public school. I was really behind because it would go so fast, and so now I can actually take my time. Mm. So that's nice. And I don't have the pressure that I had at school and everything. Yeah, so you, you, you want to... G-Wagon for oh, your yeah. 16th I, birthday. I need my G-Wagon. There's no question. I need it. There's no question. Yeah. You need that. Yeah. My mom's buying a Bentley for herself. Why can't I get a G-Wagon? Um, why do you need a G-Wagon? I just, I really want the G-Wagon. Well, I understand you want it, but why do you, you said, I need the G-Wagon. Why I do you need I really like the way it looks. I've wanted one for over two years now. I, oh. Every time I see them. You see so many of them near my house, and I just, every time I see one, I'm in awe. I love them. They're just, the interior is so nice, and there's no blind spots at all. Like, it's so big and open. There's so much trunk space. It's amazing. And they look yeah. so nice inside. When you're inside, when you see the interior, the exterior doesn't even matter at all. It's just amazing. And I, I really want a nice car. She wants to give me a Mercedes C-Class. <laughs> I, I will accept that car. No, I would I start no, no, with no, a no, Honda listen, or a Toyota and then listen, it barely gets. I will be happy with that car, but Bitch. the thing is, I want my G Wagon. <laughs> I want my G Wagon! Really? A C Class? But we started with a, like a Honda, a Toyota. I, got, I started Absolutely with a Toyota. Absolutely not. I will not be driving anything that can be considered an Uber X. An, a what? An Uber X. An Uber X? Yes, we're going Uber Lux and above. My car doesn't cost $231,000. Why not? I mean, why doesn't it? That just seems like an exorbitant amount to spend on a car. It just seemed foolish to me. I, wouldn't, I just wouldn't spend it on a car. Well, I, I want to. We're talking so, about me here. Yeah, this is so, my show. We're talking about me here. Well, look, as a way of encouragement, you just go home and give your kid, kids a great big hug and say, you're amazing, can't you? Really? This is, uh, this is something else. This is something else. Um, what's scary about this is she's become a new internet phenomenon. And people are pursuing her, getting her opinion on everything. She was interviewed in her car the other day. Guess what it was? A G-Wagon. Mum got her a G-Wagon. Okay, so, um, and there's a little picture of her on YouTube again with her with a whole lot of shopping bags. Uh, and uh, Nicolette, after a $35,000 shopping spree this afternoon, you know, so mums, dads, they get what they're given, I suppose. Uh, but, you know, she's going to be the next Paris Hilton, if that means anything to anybody. Well, <clears throat> let's have a look at what St. Paul had to say <laughs> to juxtapose this, to put this in context. What uh, St. Paul had to say about gathering things. He, say, he said, uh, from prison, he said, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, 
whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You know, <clears throat> stories like this um, that we've just seen uh, are, are amusing at one level and deeply, deeply distressing at another. But I, I spent some time with the youth group on the Wednesday night, just gone, and I showed them this video uh, just to encourage them to go for the best. No, I mean, just to, just to teach them about um, humility. And we all are in these similar roles, aren't we, where we have um, somebody who would, if we wanted to, we would try to impress them. And so I, I chatted to the young folks and I said, look, some of you can get upset because you've only got an iPhone 6 and you feel like you need an iPhone 7 or an iPhone X, okay, whatever it might be, and you feel when you pull your phone out that you're less than somebody else because somebody else next to you will pull out a, a newer phone. And so all of this sort of stuff uh, consumes us, and particularly when, it talks, when we talk about our social lives as teenagers, you know. You know, mum, dad, you're the only people who won't let me buy that pair of shoes, you know. I'm the only person in my class who hasn't got a pair of shoes like that. Or everybody's going to this party and I'm just a social reject if you don't let me go. So we all have these inner quarrels and inner turmoils going on, don't we? Yeah? Well, at least I did when I was a kid. But um, we need to have something to put things into perspective. And, and for me, there are times when I, I intentionally do this. Like, I mean, I, I, know I'm, I, know, I know I talk about hunting a bit, but... Um, one of the things that I did in the last couple of years is did these Caminos, two times 800 kilometer walks. And uh, the fun thing about doing Camino is you learn to live without, because everything that you have, you have to carry. You know, so I'm there and I, after about a week, I look at this pair of socks and I'm going, ah, I haven't worn that pair of socks, toss. You know, uh, toothbrush, in half. How much toothpaste am I gonna need in the next three weeks? I'll get rid of that much. You know, and so you learn to live with less so that you can actually have more. Yeah, does it make sense? Of course it does. Yeah. Um, I can remember one particular time having been hunting with my son-in-law and my, and my son. And it was a winter hunt, and we crossed over a river, and it was getting late in the day, and my son got a deer. And so we had to bone it out, throw it in our pack, and by this time it was getting dark, and it was raining. And we'd lost the trail to get us back over the river. So we're going up and down this cliff, uh, looking down on the river, trying to find the trail back down. We finally found it, and uh, we crossed over the river. The river was getting swollen. We were cold. Another 45 minutes or so back to camp, and we lit a fire, and we were under this big tarpaulin, which we'd set up before we went. So we had this little sort of area where we did life, and we had this fire, and I pulled out of my pack two packets of rice risotto. Now, rice risotto is one of those meals that you have at the back of the pantry, isn't it? When you're absolutely desperate, okay, uh, when there's nothing to eat, you'll pull out a rice risotto and go, this will do. Well, we cooked up the rice risotto, and uh, it took us probably about an hour to get the fire going, and we dished up ourselves these two, uh, three huge plates of rice risotto, and we all sat there and looked at each other with a grin on our face saying, this is just the best food I've ever tasted. <laughs> yeah? Why? Because... It was warm, it was nourishing, there was plenty of it, and we'd had such a great day. The fire was warming us up, the food was going to warm us up, and we all slept really, really well. You know, and yet everything gets put in its right perspective. Um, the last time I we went hunting down Fiordland in April, uh, it's just the way things work out. We get up early and we come back late from the camp, and uh, we had two weeks and we didn't have a shower or a bath, you know? 
And uh, honestly, we didn't even realise how bad we were, but when you get into the helicopter and at 5,000 feet, the helicopter guy says, can you open a window? <laughs> you know, the pilot, you know there's, there's trouble, <laughs> trouble brewing. <laughs> um, but I live off that for months, you know, like every time I jump in the shower, turn on a hot tap, I go, oh, this is such a luxury, isn't it? Just to have something that we look upon as a basic uh, entitlement, and yet we can luxuriate in it if we have the right attitude towards it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So James says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Think of, think of Cain there. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So what James is saying here is that you're, you're fighting and you're quarreling, um, and he says you should be people of prayer, but not praying for yourself, but for kingdom needs. Kingdom needs. Okay? So that causes us to ask the question, what is this sort of positive prayer that is kingdom building, has kingdom value, kingdom perspectives? So I just want to take us through some ideas about what this is, because it's not all about us. Remember this prayer comes from the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Of course, the Lord's Prayer is, again, an opportunity to put everything in perspective. And we could, as you could, spend some time going through that prayer and realizing that it's an upside-down kingdom. It's not about us. It's about God and how we serve him. Uh, Genesis 12.1, when Abraham is called, he is called to be blessed in the first instance so he can be a blessing. Not only would he be a blessing, but people who bless him will be blessed. Okay? So, Lord, how can I be a blessing to others? Because I'm already blessed. I'm blessed with a relationship with you. I'm blessed with my salvation in Christ. I'm blessed that my sins have been forgiven. Blessed that I'm already walking into eternity and eternal life is, is, our, is our promise. And then, as we looked at with James earlier on, who, who needs my help? There's a prayer. Lord, who can I help today? And in James 1.27, we've already been reminded that uh, the orphans and the widows, they're the ones whom we take care of, and that is, according to James, perfect religion. Perfect religion. To look after those who don't have the ability to meet their own needs. Where can I serve? Where can I serve? Uh, Colossians, again, reminds us that we aren't only called to serve, but we're called to serve with a good motive. We're told there that don't just work because your human or earthly boss or master is looking upon you, but work as one who is serving the Lord all the time. So it's how we serve. Uh, who can I talk to about Jesus? You know, we're told in First Peter that we should be quick to be able to give an answer to the faith that we have. Always be prepared, always be prepared. So who can I talk to about Jesus? Um, Lord, what, are, what blind spots do I have? Jeremiah tells us that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things. So that requires us to search our heart, doesn't it? Okay, what blind spots do I have? We could call it sin. What sinful things are going on in my life that God you'd like to work on? Yeah, not difficult prayers in themselves, but very challenging. And, and finally, Lord, how can I be more generous and loving? Uh, probably summarizes all of these, actually. Uh, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians 
In 2 Corinthians, he celebrated the fact that the Macedonians in chapter 8, out of their extreme poverty, welled up in generosity. And their poverty welled up in generosity to, to, to make a gift to the Jerusalem church that was suffering at the time. So, James moves on, and now he's really starting to hit the hammer home, and he's, he's really climbing into the people here. He says, you adulterous, gener- you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He's talking two different kingdoms here, isn't he? And he's trying to split the difference between the two. Now, the reason that he used this term adulterous is because it's a very common reference for those who have been raised up in a Hebrew tradition. The the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our God, has made a covenant, not a partnership, not an agreement, but a covenant with the people of Israel that locks them together for eternity. Now, when you break a covenant, like in a marriage, it's called, at a physical level, it's called adultery. And so, Many times throughout the story of the Hebrew uh, people, they find themselves having turned away from the living God to foreign gods, the Baals, the Asherah poles, and different ways in which they would worship the foreign gods of different nations. And so God was always calling them back, pulling them back. And one of the examples that's given to us as a really powerful example is in the book of Hosea. And um, Hosea, as a prophet, would have been, I can imagine, just a fine young man, outstanding worshipper of Yahweh. And he would have grown up in the midst of his people as somebody who others looked upon as being a great example of living a godly life. So Hosea is asked by God to do something rather unusual. And this is what he was asked. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. This is pretty bizarre, isn't it, really? Here's this guy who has you know, lived a pure life, and he's gone and asked to, been asked to yoke himself together with what in some other translations actually literally says a prostitute, okay? a promiscuous woman. So he marries a woman called Goma, and they have children. The first child is called Jezreel, because this is the place where God is going to defeat the nation of Israel's armies in the valley of Jezreel. And then he goes on to have another two children, and they are called Not My People. That child is called Not My People. And, uh, and the third one was called Not Loved. All right? So um, you're walking down the street with your kids. You've got your prostitute, ex-prostitute wife on your shoulder there, and you're saying, Come on, Not My Loved. Come on, Not My People. Come on, Jezreel. You know, and, and, and their whole life is a statement of what God is feeling about this nation that Hosea is called to serve. Okay, he's got a picture there of this adultery that he's calling people back to, a covenant. But he's got as a nation of, sorry, a, yeah, essentially a nation of people who don't love him and who are, who are not his people anymore. So it's a very strange start to this this life of Hosea's, and then um, his wife disappears on him. And she's off having other lovers, which must have been deeply distressing for him. And we're told 
that this is an allegory, a picture, an illustration of God's relationship with his people Israel. And this is what happens. In chapter 2, it says, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. Okay, allure. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor, which means the valley of trouble, a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my master. So this illustration between Homer, Homer, Hosea and Gomer, We've got a surname for them now, haven't we? They're the Simpsons. Okay. <laughs> so Hosea and Gomer, um, in this relationship, they break covenant. She breaks covenant. And, and God uses this illustration as a way of describing how he's going to treat Israel. Take her out into the desert. What's in the desert? Nothing. Nothing. But it's a good place to get your attention because there's no distractions. Okay. No cell phones. And there, God is going to whisper to her. He's going to speak tenderly to her. He's going to allure her, win her back, not with punishment, but with love. And it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? He's going to take this doorway of trouble, and he's going to use that to be turned into a doorway of hope. It's It's a beautiful picture. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me, my husband, you no longer call me master. Okay, so it's a completely different relationship, a complete change of relationship. So when we go back to James and we find that he's calling uh, this people, this church, an adulterous people, he's making a reference to something that is a very powerful image for those who have been in the Hebrew tradition. And he's using it to describe how he loves, even though he knows that there's infidelity happening. Okay, promiscuity happening, adultery happening. And so James now moves on, and he takes this to its final conclusion. He says, Or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Verse 5 there says, do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Now, this is a, a, a really profound verse, really. Uh, firstly, we're talking about the jealousy of God. We don't often think of God as jealous, but we do find that character trait within him throughout all the Old Testament literature. But here he's talking about the jealousy that he has. Because why? Because he's given us the Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, Okay, third person of the Trinity, to dwell within us. When we are born again, we're filled with the Spirit of God. And he jealously guards that relationship. He jealously wants to have that relationship with us because he has gifted us the Holy Spirit. Now, to make, a, make this illustration simple, it's a little bit like a parent who has given their 16-year-old, or maybe younger or older, a cell phone. Now, as a parent, we give them a cell phone, and they go, yay! I've been liberated and set free, welcomed into the world of the 21st century. What the parent is going is, now I can keep an eye on you. Now I can be in contact with you. But what happens is mum rings, mum texts, and the kids don't reply. All right? Because why is mum doing this? Because she's 
jealously guarding this relationship with you. Jealously guarding it. Because why? She has a right to. She's entitled to jealously guard it because not only is this child her child or his child, but they've given a a cell phone so that we can keep in relationship with each other. And in the same way, we have this relationship with God where God has given us life. He's our Father. He's our Creator. But He's given us the Holy Spirit so that we can connect willingly, openly, honestly, with heartfelt desire. This relationship that we have with God is something that is so special. God wants to protect it with us and for us. But of course, as we live in the world and as we know, we get distracted. We put the phone on mute. We turn it off sometimes. Or when the phone comes, we, we ignore the call, or we take a long time to get back, or we only ring when we're in trouble. This is why James speaks so strongly and firmly to his people, because he's saying, look, you've got more to have, more to receive from this God who wants to come into your desert place and allure you back to win you over that you would call him like a husband rather than a master. You'd have a loving relationship rather than a relationship built upon legalism and law. And so this relationship that James is talking about is something that he wants us to understand as being our privilege and our right. All we've got to do is slow down and listen a bit more, take time. And one of the things that people have asked me in the past is how can I tell whether I'm friends with the world or not? Well, by simply asking that question, you're three quarters of the way there, I think. You know, because only somebody who doesn't want to be friends with the world is going to ask that question because it's a question that talks about friendship, kinship with God, a relationship with God. We go to God and say, Lord, how can I not be friends with the world but still live in this world? How can I get my motives right so that I can pray with good intent not about me, but about others and about your kingdom. So God has given James to us to straighten up these motives and to call us to walk in humility with him and to ensure that we always feel good about having our cell phones on. Because God is the God who allures us. He loves us back into a relationship with him. He's not punishing us. He's not beating up on us. He's not trying to condemn us. He's wanting to overwhelm us with a revelation of his love which will cause us to cease our running away and cause ourselves to come back to somebody who we love to surrender our lives to because he's so loving and so just and so kind. I am second. God is first. Let's stand for prayer. Father, as we look at the book of Genesis and we find Cain killing Abel, we know that we are very capable of doing the same. As we wrestle with others, projecting some of our our grief upon others around us in the same way that Cain did to Abel. And in the same way, Lord, it's very easy for us to be adulterous particularly when we look at the covetousness of the world and how it is that uh, our world spins on that axis of desiring more or feeling entitled. We, um, we think of this young girl, Nicolette, and I'm grateful that even today we could pray for her, Lord, 
and that you hear our prayers. We, we do pray that you deliver this young woman of, of uh, the bondage that she's in, that bondage to being loved for what she has rather than who she is. And Lord, we pray for ourselves in the same vein, for we're all capable of this behavior. And yet, Lord, you jealously guard us. You jealously want us to hear your voice, to be online for you, Lord, to be in cell phone range in such a way that you can speak to us as your spirit jealously works to connect us with the Father. God, we thank you for the the powerful words that James gives us. And we thank you that as we open ourselves up to you, you're the one who allures us, draws us back, loves us into completeness and reminds us that we are indeed sons and daughters. So we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.